Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Managing Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Aaron McGuire, the Chief Executive Officer for USA Bobsled and Skeleton. But before we begin, first a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 23 will be held in the Palm Beaches, Florida from October 2nd through the 5th, 2023. The conference will again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Sports Link Program, an NGB Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. Aaron McGuire was a member of the USA bobsled national team from 2003 through 2006, and after his athletic career was completed, he worked for USA Track and Field and the USOPC, eventually becoming the Senior Director of Olympic and Paralympic Training Centers. He was named USA Bobsled and Skeleton CEO in January 2020 and has since steered the NGB through the COVID-19 pandemic, a successful Olympic Winter Games performance in Beijing, and starting this month, the return of international competition in North America, with the World Cup season starting November 22nd in Canada, before going to Park City, Utah, from December 1st through the 3rd, and then to Lake Placid, New York, for the World Push Championships and World Cup event. McGuire joins us to talk about the upcoming events, what growing the sport throughout the United States is like, how athletes can become part of the bobsled or skeleton national teams, and much more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Aaron McGuire, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Great. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. For USA Bobsled and Skeleton, as part of the World Cup schedule, you have events this year in Whistler, in Park City, Utah, and in Lake Placid, New York. How important are these North American stops for you from an event perspective? And when it comes to Park City and Lake Placid, what work do you specifically as an NGB put into helping organize them? So we, we haven't raced in North America for a World Cup in the last two years due to COVID. So we spent a lot of time in Europe and, and obviously time in Beijing, Beijing, China for the Olympic Games. So it's always fun to, to race on home ice and to start off the season in North America. So going from, from Whistler down to Park City, December 1st to the 3rd. And then off to Lake Placid, December 16th to 18th. For the athletes themselves, it's a chance for for their friends and family, mom and dad, to come out and cheer them on. And certainly it's a, a boost of confidence for them because they're on tracks that they're, they're very familiar with. What type of toll has it taken on athletes, coaches, the whole organization, and not having the chance to compete in North America for the past few years? Your athletes have been living out of suitcases for months and months at a time. They, they have. And so the entire season last year, we were either in Europe or, or Asia. And so it, it certainly wears, wears an athlete out, wears a coach out for being on the road that long. But, you know, you think back about all the adjustments and, and changes that the team has had to go through over the last several years. One of the, one of the benefits from all those adjustments and plan A, B, C is that the teams become very resilient, you know, where where a change prior to the pandemic may have caused a lot of concern and uneasiness. Athletes these days, if something something changes, then they just roll with it, and as as well as our uh, as well as our, our coaches there. You mentioned the amount of stress that it's been. You know, what have you seen in terms of 
potential changeover or athletes who have said, you know, I was thinking about doing this for another year, but I'm not really sure if I can, or, you know, what do you have to do to really try to retain your athlete talent pool, but also your coaches? So we certainly would like to have that uh, historical knowledge and, and bring the best folks in, uh, whether they're coaches, staff, and, and certainly our athletes. It's natural for there to be a bit of turnover after an Olympic quad, so after Olympic Games. And so you have some folks that are returning who are veterans. And we've got a, not, a lot of new rookies that are, are part of the program now. And that's that's kind of the exciting part. You know, we're certainly we're grateful for the contributions that the athletes who are retiring have made to the sports of bobsled and skeleton. But when you have some new folks that are excited and passionate that really creates that exciting environment that that has that positive effect on on our coaches as well. As we're as we're looking to this next year and this next quad, uh, we've got exciting opportunities with some push athletes on the bobsled side that are now moving up to get behind the driver's seat and become a pilot. And so not only do we have some veterans returning, we've got some new rookies with a lot of great talent that are coming into the sport. And then we've got some experienced athletes that are getting behind the, the steering wheel, so, so to speak, in the bobsled. As a former bobsledder yourself, how difficult of an adjustment to become a, a driver compared to the push athlete? What type of training and transition time does it really take? Bobsled and skeleton are, are very unique sports in the, the fact that we look for a lot of talent transfer athletes. And so many of the athletes that we bring into the sport or, or who are successful in the sports were former collegiate athletes or high school athletes in other sports. Football, track and field are a couple of the obvious ones. Rugby. We've had some CrossFit athletes make the transition. And uh, in fact, this year, we've got a university swimmer uh, has made the transition in, on the national team this year. That transition into, into being a, a push athlete, it's fairly simple. Uh, well, relatively simple compared to being a pilot. I kind of say if you're you're a large person that can run fast and push heavy objects, you like a little bit of fear factor and willing to go down a, a bobsled track or skeleton track at 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, then you could be a potentially a great bobsled or skeleton athlete. We've had athletes that have come in, tried out, and made a national team within the first six months or a year. The technique is is really a modified sprint technique. And so you, you as a push athlete, you can can make a national team in, in a short amount of time. And, and some athletes it takes, you know, several years and other athletes just don't make it to that next level. But to be a pilot, you really have to understand the sport. You've got to understand all the tracks. The sports are, are very unique in terms of we don't travel around with a pit crew who's moving the sleds. And so the athletes themselves are the, the pit crew. So there are a lot of nuances that it takes to be the leader of the, of the team, which our pilots typically are. And so a lot of times you see a transition of an athlete that's been a push athlete for a couple of years, really fall in love with the sport and say, then say, I want to be a pilot. And so to be a really good pilot, it takes anywhere between four and six years to get to that World Cup level and then be in a position to, to earn a medal. What do people maybe not understand about having to spend an entire season traveling around Europe and this year, Europe and South America and North America, excuse me, from a logistical standpoint, especially you mentioned the sleds that must be transported around sleds, skeletons. These are not things that you can easily that you can easily move from one spot to another. Right. Uh, you know, and a bobsled doesn't really fit into a carry on as carry on. Luggage <laughs> and so, you know, we're fortunate to have two great partners that help us move our equipment around. JRC, they do all the ground transportation in North America. And then Cap Logistics is working with us to, to move our sleds from the United States over to Europe. 
if you're familiar with those big shipping crates that you see on boats and, and being loaded into, into planes, we actually put all of our equipment into about 10 to 12 of those shipping crates. And so the athletes themselves, you know, again, they're the pit crew. They go down, they load up all the equipment into the sleds, put together an inventory. And then we, we physically ship those crates over to Europe. The athletes fly over. They get off the plane. They go directly over to shipping and receiving, pick up rental cars, uh, rental vans, load those sleds up into those rental vans, and then drive to the first location and, and first competition. They'll be there for about a week, race, Mondays, usually moving day, Sunday night sometimes, and they'll go to the next location. And so um, they're the ones that are physically going through, loading things up and going from one stop to the next. Since you guys are so limited in venues throughout the United States, at least, how do you overcome the challenge of getting your sport to the mainstream public as much as possible where more people can experience it? And I know going back to Beijing, you guys were able to have a lot of exposure. I believe Monobob, which was a new event in, in Beijing, was the one of the broadcast events right after the Super Bowl. That had to have been a huge boost for you guys. It was. And we were excited because NBC had was obviously showing the Super Bowl that year along with the Olympic Games. And so two of the largest sporting events on TV. I re really recall being in Beijing, China, and we knew that the Monobob was going to follow the Super Bowl. And I was keeping, you know, we were all keeping keeping track of the score. And really, I didn't really care who won. I wanted it to be close. So people tuned in till the fourth quarter. But I didn't want it to go into overtime because it went into overtime. We'd miss that live feed from the Monobob. So as the last drive is going down the field, uh, did you become a Rams fan really, really, really <laughs> fastly? <laughs> you know what? I yeah, yeah, I, I became a fan of let's let's get this over with go right to right to the the monobob and so it worked out it worked out perfectly at the time we had our two our two top female bobsledders kaylee humphreys and alana myers taylor um who were sitting in first and third in that final run and nbc had been promoting the monobob throughout the super bowl and they went live straight from the the celebration of the super bowl to, to the monobob in, in beijing and they showed the last 10 sleds and it kind of down from 10, 9, 8, 7. And Alana moved herself into that silver medal position. Kaylee held on to gold. And so in front of 26 million viewers, which is which was the highlight of the Winter Olympic Games this past year, U.S. went one and two. And so for us, it was a great opportunity to, to bring a new sport, which was women's monobob. One person is the push athlete. She gets in and drives down the track and bring a bring a new sport and, and be successful to the homes across the United States. How often do the U.S. tracks need to be upgraded to meet international standards? And how important was recent work done in Lake Placid? You now have a new push facility there that allows you to do some off-season work. We're, we're fortunate to have two tracks in the United States. We're, we're not quite as fortunate as, as Germany, who has four, four or five tracks in Germany. But we do have two great partners in Park City and, and Lake Placid. And the two tracks themselves are very are very different. So for us, athletes that are learning to drive on those, those two tracks really get a full scope of skill sets of, of driving. And that helps prepare them for tracks around the world. Tracks themselves, you don't, no one builds builds a bobsled track for the fun of it. They're not they're not inexpensive to build in the first place. They're not inexpensive to maintain. And so need to really give a lot of credit to both Utah and New York for investing in both of those tracks and maintaining them in order to provide that support system for the USA athletes, but then also to provide an opportunity for the general public to come out and and 
try a bobsled ride either in the summer or winter. And so they do passenger rides year round. It is costly to maintain, but you know certainly there's an opportunity in the future for the winter Olympic Games to return to Utah. A lot of credit goes to Utah for maintaining those those venues. This winter, uh, New York is hosting the World University University Games, and so they've got a great event going on in, in their track as well. You mentioned the new facility. The bobsled run itself is about a mile long, and it takes about a minute to get down. But there's a lot of prep work that goes into training for on a given day. And, and during a typical day, an athlete may only take, or a team may only take one or two runs, whether it's in bobsled and skeleton. In both sports, there's really three elements that are, that are critical for success. The start, how fast you get going at, at the very top of the track. It's how well you drive down the track. And then the equipment, how good equipment you have. And you can be competitive with two of the three. But if you want to be in metal contention, you, you have to be great in all three of those areas. The state of New York and, and Lake Placid, the region, invested in, and built what's called an indoor push track, which is essentially a giant refrigerator freezer, the length of a football field. And it's the it replicates the start of a bobsled or skeleton track. And they all start off and they're flat and then they go they go downhill. And so that allows our athletes to be training on ice year round whether it's June, July, August, December, January, and they can be getting reps in that ice house. And so where typically they would do two or three starts in a day during the preseason off season, they can be doing 10 to 20 starts and really working on that timing and the technique of that start. So it's interesting you mentioned about how you were able to find athletes. When you have people who really don't have access to a sliding track and, and but are interested in the sport, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, I'm, you know, this is... This looks pretty good. I'd, I'd like to know more about it. What do you normally do in terms of do you have to screen these athletes and see what what do they do? what is, what is their background? What do you what makes you think that they themselves could be potentially a, a national team performer? So we we do recruit all fifty states across the United States, and, we, and regardless of the fact that we have two tracks in the United States in in Lake Placid and Park City, uh, we do get a number of athletes that come from that area, and they they may have a history, a family history of of bobsledding or, or doing a skeleton. But we've got athletes from Florida, from Texas, California, the Midwest, all across the United States, because there is that opportunity for talent transfer. Historically, what we've done is we've identified eight to ten cities around the country, and we'll go and do in-person combines, very similar to the NFL, where we test an athlete's sprinting, we test their vertical jump, their standing long jump, really their, their speed and power and explosive ability. During the pandemic, during COVID, we couldn't do that. So we had to cancel all the in-person in -person combines. And so we partnered with a company called GMTM that at the time was creating a platform for online recruiting. And it was at the time, at the time really targeted towards football. But we saw a lot of upside and a lot of opportunity for athletes to submit virtual tryouts directly to us. And so right now, we, we still do a traditional in-person combines, but running year-round 12 months a year, if an athlete is interested in, in potentially trying out for the sport of bobsled or skeleton, they can go to our website, uh, usabs.com, short for USA Bobsled Skeleton, and go to recruit. And that links them to the, the GMTM tri virtual tryout, virtual combine. And in that virtual combine, we ask athletes to tell us a little bit about, about who they are. What's their background? Um, what other sports have they played? They submit a film of them sprinting, doing a 60-meter sprint and a standing long jump. And that gives our coaches the opportunity to see, do they have sprint mechanics? 
do they have explosive power? And then we we ask for a highlights video, any video that they want to show us. And so oftentimes they'll they'll show us highlights from a track meet, a football game. We've had some really creative submissions where athletes are jumping over their couch in their house or pushing their car. And so really love that creative, you know, really shows their personality and, and that creative side of them. And so from that virtual combine that athletes can try out, whether it's in their backyard, local football field or local track, submit those videos. Our coaches are constantly reviewing those videos. And then from there, once they start to identify athletes that the coaches feel could be successful bobs that are skeleton athletes, we'll actually do in-person rookie camps at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Lake Placid. We'll invite those athletes out there for about a, a week-long uh, rookie, we call it a rookie camp. And during that week, they will learn about the sports of bobsled and skeleton, what's involved, all the, you know, many of the technical aspects of it. But then we'll also test them with their their speed and power. And then we'll get them pushing a bobsled or skeleton on rails, on wheels. And that gives a very uh, rudimentary foundation for pushing those sleds. And then towards the end of that week, they actually get it to go out to that ice house that I mentioned previously and push a bobsled or skeleton on, on ice. We'll start to see you know, which athletes are picking up, which athletes have the potential to be great athletes. From there, we typically identify and, and, and invite those athletes to come back for further camps in, in Lake Placid or Park City. And then the next step is we do a, we do a team selection where there'll be a, a push championships or team trials where athletes will be selected to be either skeleton athletes, pilots for bobsled, and, or, or push athletes for the, for the bobsled team. You were named CEO of USA Bobsled and Skeleton in January 2020, right as COVID started being part of the world conversation. How challenging has it been to keep the organization afloat the past two years? And what does the sponsorship landscape look like? I'll say I'm fortunate to be part of an organization with, with great people that are involved. We've got a, an amazing board of directors. We've got great coaches and we've got great staff who have a lot of historical knowledge. In a lot of ways, the organization was was doing some some really good things really, really well. And so a lot of the the first year, like most companies, most organizations, was navigating the COVID situation. For me, I, I definitely had a lot of late nights and weekends in terms of learning both what was going on within the organization itself, but then you know, working with the team to navigate those those COVID challenges there. And then you move right into year two, the Olympic Games. And so oftentimes in Olympic Games, the goal is to be as least disruptive as possible for the athletes, because if you start making significant changes, that can act- actually be a bit more detrimental because it becomes a distraction with the athletes. During that time, we did find opportunities for us to have positive impacts and put forth some some great initiatives in terms of working with athletes transitioning out of their their athletic career into their prof- professional career, uh, working on mental mental health resources and really leveraging what the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee offers, but creating that structure to allow them to focus on on the Olympic Games and for some athletes coming into the sport learning about it. So for me, it was it was a lot. I was you know you're definitely jumping into the deep end. Got through it, which was amazing and and. Tremendously proud of the team for their success in Beijing with three Olympic medals. Extremely pr- proud of the athletes that came into the sport during those challenging times that are still with us and excited about the next four years. And so now I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm I'm starting starting again fresh in this role. And so there's a lot of things that we're, we're looking back at saying, hey, here's what we've done historically. 
now's our opportunity to, to make some adjustments and make some changes in terms of how we select the team. And we've got the Ice House, which is a great facility that we can use to collect data, um, the communication that we're doing with the athletes. And, and really one of the things that we're working on in our next steps is, is really building that trust collectively within the organization because the time of years of doing Zoom and not having that face-to-face have, I, I think, within our society, we've we've kind of taken steps back and we've lost a little bit of that trust. For us to spend a lot more time face-to-face and actually without masks and seeing people smile, it's going to go a long way. So it was a, a steep learning curve for me. But that being said, a lot of times during challenging times, that's when you learn the most. And so it was a learning opportunity for me, and I'm excited about the next four years. What does having been a previous member of the USA Bobsled National Team give you now as an executive in the sense of what athlete needs are from the NGB, whether it be financially, mentally, physically? Mention the mental part. That has been a huge part of the USOPC's emphasis, one of their main points of emphasis in the COVID era. So I was fortunate. I, I had a I had an experience. I was on the national team for several seasons, and that was a, a great experience for me. And then moved moved over to USA Track and Field and worked there for about year, eight years. Um, attended two Olympic Games in in Beijing and London. Then worked with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee at the training centers for about six years. So I had the opportunity to see a lot of different perspectives. And I would say that my my experience as an athlete is was very similar to a lot of a lot of other experiences of, of athletes these days. Um, you know, I mentioned the tryout that we do right now. Very similar to the tryout that I went through in my own experience of going to the training center in Lake Placid and then being invited to come back to work to, to train with the team and then being selected to the national team. And one of my experiences that I've had a chance to look back on is, is that as an athlete, your your goals are always changing. That that end zone or that finish line always changes. And I remember myself personally thinking back about my experience of going to that first rookie camp. And my goal was, I just want to be invited back. I got invited back. And then it was, I just want to make a national team. Then I made a national team. And then I said, I just want to make a, make a world cup team, made a world cup team. I want to make a, make a world championship team. And I made that world championship team. And then I said, I'll roll and make that Olympic team. And I missed that Olympic team because that target is always changing. It's difficult for athletes to ever really get to that, accomplish everything that they want. And so, you know, for many of our other athletes, they make that Olympic team and they say, I want to get a, make a medal, get a good, get a medal. Then it's multiple medals. And so what I've observed is that a lot of, and I went through it myself of not making the Olympic team for a period of time after, after that experience, I look back at my experience and I was angry and frustrated because I was focused on, on make, not making that Olympic team. And I felt like I hadn't accomplished what I wanted to, to accomplish and I'd set out to do. But after a period of time, I realized I had been focusing on what I didn't accomplish as opposed to focusing on what I did accomplish. And having having the courage to go out and try something new, that was a huge accomplishment. Sticking with a sport that was brand new and learning about it, that was a huge accomplishment. And making that national team and having that opportunity to wear a uniform that's red, white, and blue and says USA, I mean, that's that's a huge honor. And so when I refocused what I was thinking about and what my focus was and what I accomplished as opposed to what I didn't accomplish, my whole mindset changed in terms of that experience as opposed to looking at as as a failed experience. I thought that was that was a successful experience. And that experience helped set me up for what was next in life. And I always say that, you know, that that unique experience of being a bobsled or skeleton athlete will get you that interview, but it won't get you the job. What will get you the job is identifying 
how you grew as a person during that experience. Did you focus on goal setting? Did you work with with other people with the team to accomplish a common goal? Did you get that opportunity to to travel around the world and, and meet other people and, and be immersed within other cultures? That resilience factor when things changed, how did you react to it? Did you throw your hands up and give up, or did you did you adapt? And it's identifying those positive aspects, those positive experiences that you had within your athletic career that's going to ultimately get you the job or allow you to grow as as a person. And I, I truly believe that the athletes that we have within the sport, no matter what level you get to, whether you just attend that first rookie camp, you make a national team, you make an Olympic team, you, you earn a medal. Every athlete within the sport has that opportunity to gain those experiences to grow as a person and set them up, themselves up for a positive experience after their athletic career. You have bobsledders who are whipping down these tracks and their sleds. Skeleton people are going down headfirst with no protection whatsoever. How crazy do you have to be to be in this sport? <laughs> well, there, I will say there is protection. There is, there is, they, they do have helmets, they do have burn vests. The thing about skeleton is that you got low center of gravity. Uh, you're going head first. There is a fair factor. Bob said the same thing. I mean, you're getting in a, in a, in a mono Bob, a two man, a two woman, a four man sled, again, going 80, 90 miles an hour. There are definitely two types of people that get into the sport. Those that take their first run and they ask the question, how quickly can I get to the back, back to the top of the track to go down the, go down the track again? And those that say, how quickly can I get to the airport to go home? And you either love it or it's not for you. And so there is a fear factor and there's, there's an adrenaline rush that you, no matter how many times you've gone down, you feel every single time. It's a unique experience. It's a special experience. I was thinking about this the other day about the number of athletes that get into the sport that stay in the sport. And we're probably only talking competitively each year, a couple hundred that are competing in the sports of Bob's and Skeleton. I looked it up the other day. There are approximately 800 people that summit Mount Everest every year. And so we're talking an accomplishment that is, you know, in some ways larger than, than hiking, climbing Mount Everest there. And so it's, it's definitely rare error. If you get into the sport, you try it and you come back, come back to the next year. Well, those who uh, want to make their way right back up to the start start line again, instead of going to the airport, uh, their season starts in Whistler later this month and then going on to Park City and Lake Placid for the rest of the World Cup season. And Aaron McGuire, thank you very much for joining us on the Sports Travel Podcast. Great. Thanks for having me and go USA. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trow for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.